0: Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd, with me, Barbara Drew. Today, I'm sitting down with Charlie Rudd, Regional Manager for Southeast Asia, to discuss Burgundy, food matching, and what life is like at Berry Brothers and Rudd overseas. Charlie, welcome.
1: Thank you, Barbara. Great to be here.
0: Before we get into all of the exciting things that I want to cover today, I'd really like to hear a little bit about your background because you were telling me earlier that actually you're not in London very much. (laughs) So where are you based? What do you do? And how did you get there?
1: So I'm based full-time in Singapore. I moved out there just over four years ago, working my first job actually for Barry Brothers and Rudd. So while being part of the family and working in the business the London office is actually slightly unfamiliar for me which is an interesting dynamic asking people who think I should know better. My wife is Singaporean and while I like to think I ended up in Singapore therefore by chance because we met in the UK and then moved out together with her. And I remember saying, do you want to go back home? I'm sure that it was definitely something being orchestrated Um, (laughs) and it was no happy coincidence that we ended up in Singapore where it's been the most marvelous four years for Berries, for myself and and for the team there.
0: Did you always see yourself working in Wine & Spirits? Was working for the family company always on the horizon or did you used to have different ideas about what you would do?
1: Like a lot of people I had, No idea what I wanted to do. So I went and did a a broad degree international business and met my wife at Durham and then did a master's. Four years there, met my wife, and then went to work for Anchor Steam Brewing. It was my first ever job. Met Tony Folio by chance in the office here, having just going and handing in my thesis. And he asked what I was doing and, and said, I'd like to give you a job interview for half an hour, an hour or so. And then if it all goes well, I'll see you in San Francisco in a few months. And then I moved out six months later.
0: That's fantastic. So for our listeners, do you want to tell them a little bit about what Anchor Steam is? Uh, yes, of course. Is-
1: Anchor Steam Brewing was a part of the Berry's portfolio that we had a, a 40% stake in. So Tony, who was the ceo and i believe still operates in some capacity at anchor was in in london to meet lizzie the boss mum goes by many names i was then given the chance to go and work out within their sales team for six months selling basically anchor steam is uh, america's oldest craft brewery and focused primarily on san francisco and california but looking to expand a bit further but like bbr is loads of history and where craft beer especially with the us and prohibition it's not quite as old as 325 years but it still early 1900s. Lovely first job.
0: I'm always, always surprised when I'm reminded how many different things Berry butters and Rudd does. There is this perception perhaps that we Simply sell wines and spirits from our shop here at number three, St. James's street, but actually there's an awful lot going on behind the scenes, whether it is stakes in spirits companies, whether it is offices, which are located all around the world and where you're based now. So you're based in Singapore, but you cover Southeast Asia. It's part of the great mass that is BBNR Asia. Yes. (laughs) Which covers a a multitude of activities. Mm.
1: Everything south of Hong Kong is Berry Brothers and Rudd, Singapore and Southeast Asia, as we term the office. So we have the amazing new markets of Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, where it is getting wine access to these people that maybe have never had it before who know everything that there is to know their knowledge is just otherworldly and their palates are very very discerning but there's so much prohibitive laws and restrictions and merchants aren't based there and it's it's trying to just make wine more accessible for the markets, which leads to some brilliant visits as well to Bangkok, Manila, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur.
0: I was going to say, so it's part of your job going to these markets and trying to connect with customers and discuss their needs and discuss the sorts of wines that they might like to add to their sellers.
1: Absolutely. Often with good dinner thrown in, in Bangkok a few weeks ago, where we organized the dinner with Cholongmondo, going through various back vintages and again, making it accessible to customers who may be... Especially in, in Trolong's case, I don't think they have too much of a presence in Thailand. So it was putting it in front of customers who love Claret. And introducing a range of vintages the new style old peak drinking stuff that's to lay down and trying to get the right people in front of the right producers and we're very much in the middle
0: that's really lovely to hear in the UK particularly in spring and summer it can feel as though the entire world must surely know about Bordeaux (laughs) and with the amount of Bordeaux offers and Bordeaux communications that we deal with here and so actually hearing that this fantastic Santemilion property are heading out and meeting new customers who may not be as familiar with their wines and with the styles produced. That's really lovely to hear.
1: It's really rewarding work as well because it's all you know, new business and, and development and what we can offer to the market. The door is open through our history and heritage and everything is word of mouth on referrals for us as we're only private clients in Southeast Asia. But it's once you get in front of the right people and see the passion, enthusiasm, your job is made that much easier because wine is made for, for sharing and the right people in the right place and the right time. For us in Singapore and Southeast Asia, we're definitely in the right place and at the right time with the right people.
0: I have read a lot about wine markets around the world. Part of the MW qualification, you need to have a really good understanding of how different markets work. But to be honest, a lot of that knowledge is very theoretical. So I'd love to hear a bit more about what is the wine market like in Singapore? What are people drinking? What are people buying? Are they drinking the same things as UK, US, European customers might be going mm-hmm. for, or do they choose very different things than mm-hmm. their seller?
1: I'm of course biased in that Singapore and Southeast Asia is the greatest market in the world. For us, it's still, especially Singapore, Southeast Asia, it's still actually quite a new market in that the merchant world has only really existed for probably 15, 20 years. And in truth, pretty badly maintained for the first decade of that, as it was just viewed as the extension of China. hong kong every merchant every office every wine shop has been in hong kong for 20 30 years well because of the tax and the access to asia as hong kong is the hub but singapore has just seen the most remarkable growth in terms of its its spending power its appetite for knowledge and access because as a country it can operate so successfully as a hub to the region when people ask me about singapore people ask what's it like in one sentence i say everything just works (laughs) logistics travel healthcare transport, wine, everything just works. And that means for a consumer on the other side of the world, getting access to this is far, far easier than most other markets. So actually the Singaporean in terms of palette and knowledge follows quite closely to some extent to the UK. And that I think most people start out in Bordeaux because Mm -hmm. it's safe. It's reliable. It's the largest global market. It's okay. Where can I try and own what I think I like and then steadily progress. One thing I found out about Singapore is because of the taxes and there is a fair amount of markup because it's so expensive to store and keep wine. Of course. Um, Minimal space, 30 degrees every day. It's really hard to store and look after wine in Singapore. So anyone that is selling locally will mark up their product accordingly. And actually, therefore, when you're learning about wine in Singapore, my wife told me this, that when you're in your early 20s, you will therefore drink big, thick, heavy Shiraz because that's perceived as getting the most value for money, uh-huh. because it's the hardest hitting. It's say, well, if I'm paying $70 for this, I want to feel every single ounce of it. And actually, oh, this burgundy, is sure it's far too light, I could never bother. Always red, never white, which in temperature and the climate, used to Furious. astound me that that was the go-to because it was perceived as being better value. Now, I think it's very similar the overall kind of progression of the market, that yes, it's starting in Bordeaux initially, but then the jump, of course, over to Tuscany and the introduction, the always dangerous introduction to Burgundy, given what we know in terms of pricing and access and steadily moving further afield, whether it be to Napa or the Oregon Pinots that people are looking more and more at in Singapore. So it's been really interesting even only being there for a few years and in a young market, seeing how it's moving gradually, because it's so young.
0: Really interesting. I want to continue that train of thought, but before we do a, a short digression, you mentioned storage in Singapore. Earlier in the season, we spoke with Philip Moulin about perfect storage of bottles and cases of wine, how they need to be kept at a cool, constant temperature. Humidity is good, albeit 90% humidity, perhaps not so much. Do you find that there are any problems with getting the wines to Singapore, with the shipping, with how they're received? Or actually, is it a fairly straightforward process simply because, as you said, everything works?
1: I think it's exactly that. Because of the joys of Singapore, we're experienced enough in the region that we run many shipments over and consolidated, air freighted, temperature controlled, insured, monitored, location maintained. So that when it arrives, it's still guaranteed as to its exact state. It works because it's Singapore and Singapore customs is, for the most part, very, very easy. I think customers as well, they will listen to us when we talk about the necessity for reliability. Here is our reputation. Here's what we can offer. Here is the guarantees that buying through Berry Brothers can offer, especially in a region which has had its troubles in the past. Rudy Curnia one, His name still lingers across Southeast Asia.
0: So he was one of the, probably the most famous wine fraudster who was known for bottling these almost incredible recipes of fantastic at what we'd call unicorn wines, wines which are so rare that they don't actually exist. <laughs> so certainly that sort of spectre or that slight concern mm. lingering as to where did your wines come from and are they really what they purport to be.
1: Yeah, and when we have people that say to us, Oh, don't worry, I, I know that it's Barry Brothers, so I'm a lot more confident than I, than I would be, but just, just, can you enlighten me? Just this is ex chateau. What's the difference? Can you talk to me about BBX? How exactly do I know where that's come from? It's all very much a fun part of the job. Once that kind of conversation gets going. And even though it's on the other side of the world that they still have the same access, the same opportunity. I think that's really important for the market as well, especially Singapore. And then Southeast Asia is you know, so far away from most winemaking regions in the world, especially where our, our clients are focusing on, but they feel as though they can have the same access. even though it's brand new
0: you mentioned access to different wines but of course we're talking about a region of the world as you said that is quite a long way from many of the main fine wine producing areas so if you're based in the UK France Germany even in the US it's relatively easy to go and visit a vineyard or five to really understand how wine is made and start to develop your palate how do your customers do that when it's a lot harder for them to go and visit Bordeaux or go and visit Burgundy? How Mm. do they start to develop an interest in other regions?
1: It's a really good question. In the off chance they are in London, in Bordeaux, in Burgundy, what I will say to them as a starting point is please let me know. If you're going to make the effort to come all the way to the other side of the world, let's have a conversation. If you can come to number three, and I think there's actually a customer of mine going around the shop this afternoon over from Singapore. And I said, look, you've made all the effort. If you can spare half an hour of your time, come and see us. You've heard me talk about it, but as we know from it, it's nothing better than experience it in person. And in terms of access and learning new markets, I think that's where we have quite an important job to play because as you said, it's much, much harder that people learning about Loire or, or Jura Importers won't be bringing that over because it's initially perceived as less attractive than Bordeaux and Burgundy and Tuscany and Napa that have such staple followings. So it's our job as a merchant to say, I see what you're drinking. Would you like to try this? Next time, I'll bring a bottle. Let's try this. See what you think. Let's explore. Let's have some fun. So many people are so passionate about wine in terms of their knowledge and just wanting to obtain good value for money in a region which often isn't. Singapore as a whole is now, I think it's the second most expensive place to live in the world. So actually, if you can find value in wine, that that helps a little bit, I suppose.
0: (laughs) Given it's the second most expensive city in the world to live in, where do you buy your wine? Which regions you go to for your wines for value? Mm,
1: Excellent question. Contrary to most popular belief, I probably actually still go to Burgundy, which seems like a ridiculous sentence to put together. And as I say to people with Burgundy, is a lot of the time it's either finding who's next or really looking through the gaps to see where value still maintains. Because when you can get it right in Burgundy, there is still nothing else like it. I think like most, I started off in Bordeaux initially just seeing what I liked. My wife said from the start, oh, I love Pomerol. And I just went, oh no, that's that's a bad <laughs> starting breaker. point. That's a really bad starting point. <laughs> and then she came to a customer dinner a couple of months ago and tried a Druin Bon Mar 03. And it was her first serious, serious Burgundy.
0: Fantastic. So this is a Grand Cru vineyard in chambol and um, one of the villages in Burgundy on the Côte de Nuit, which is known for producing particularly sort of fragrant and elegant styles of wine.
1: I was almost not drinking myself, just watching her, just going, I know how she's going to react here. She's going to think this is unbelievable and turn around and look at me and just go, this is it. All, all of the rest of this, this there's a new level. And I think I said to her, fortunately, you might not need to get used to that one.
0: So tell us a little bit about the bottle that you've brought along today. It's the 2017 Volnay by Comte Armand, is that
1: right? Yes, that's correct. A huge fan of Comte Armand, the Count. I think it might have been the first ever case I bought on BBX was a 2010 Oxy Premier Crew from Comte Monde.
0: And why did that leap out at you on BBX?
1: Looking at burgundy and back vintage pricing and 2010 being such a brilliant red burgundy year and actually seeing that there was still such value to be had that it was similar to a release price of it. So it was just when I'd started, so it must have been there for 2019 was very similar to the release price of the 18 vintage. I just went, well, 18 is my wedding year. I therefore wanted to buy lots of Burgundy, lots of things, unfortunately. Therefore going back and tasting a producer that I had heard really good things about, but wanted to see what it was like after a decade and seeing quite what I thought of it. And the six bottles didn't last very long.
0: (laughs) Beautifully mature, that's the joy.
1: Absolutely lovely.
0: You buy it, it's been stored in the warehouses and it's already got plenty of age on it. And you think, actually I can buy that and I can drink that now whilst I'm waiting for my 2018, for the 10 year, 20 year wedding anniversary. Abs-
1: absolutely. So, and then the, the 17 Volnay, I had my first ever trip to Burgundy last month with Berries, and we went to go and see The Count. I, I mentioned to him that big follower, and, and actually look to pick up your wines on release every year and, and backfill where I can and he was incredibly generous as well and we were tasting a lot of the 21s as well as some of the 20s and 19s just to see how the vintages were shaping up in their youth but he then started to move backwards and this was about lunchtime and he went oh just come and have lunch with me as well and i'll bring some more stuff seeing as we're still moving backwards he asked us saying are there any vintages that your customers ask about obviously they're excited about their wine and they will want to show you what they want to show you to an extent but he was one of the very few that of course, as well as doing that I said, oh, you, I really want you to try new Valet that I've been working on. And here's why I think this vintage is one worth trying. But he was asking us and saying, what do your markets like? As it is, I was with Jose from Hong Kong and Akiko from Japan as well. So he was looking at our Asian markets saying, how can I help you in terms of bring the story back to your markets? Yeah. And actually, that was really exciting to me that someone is willing to invest in the far side of the world and knows that there is passion and keenness to, to explore his wines.
0: Do you think that's something that other producers could take note of, that slightly keener focus on customer and customer demand? Do you sense that sometimes producers are a little bit too excited to tell you about their philosophy and maybe don't ask quite enough about what the customer wants?
1: I think there's definitely a a fine balance in that because it's on the other side of the world, sometimes it can be harder for producers to tell their story. So we, in effect, are then their storytellers and so of course they want to make sure that we have their story and we know what their key merits are and what they stand for and why their wine is brilliant but also therefore you want to understand where those points are really going to hit home with the market and what we can say to the customers who are saying here's a new producer you should try here's why i think they're brilliant here's my own story here's why i'd recommend and there's been instances where now they've been put in touch and there's more focus coming onto the region with producers coming out and visiting us and eyes wide open kind of customer look is it's almost like a kid at christmas to an extent <laughs> uh, we had uh, veronique saunders from oat by and came out over christmas and she had a lunch with myself and six other customers and i remember calling up these customers beforehand saying i've got something you might be quite keen on you could almost sense them just yelling down the phone God, i'll be there whatever it is i'll cancel whatever i've got on Wife, kids, holiday, I'll I'll be there. Seat confirmed, like whatever you need from me. So no, just show up, be on attendance and enjoy some lovely wine with Veronique. And then Lizzie actually extended her stay to have lunch with Veronique and myself. And I think it was really quite special for the six customers in attendance to have that. This is Berry Brothers and and this is Chateau Baye and and here's everyone together and on a 14-hour flight on the other side of the world. But yeah, they care about the market and the people inside.
0: That's so lovely to hear because, of course, when you're trying to buy Bordeaux, it can feel as though there is simply not enough to go around. And there could be a sense that the producers and the chateau owners don't necessarily need to worry too much about the whole world. The merchants can mm-hmm. sell their wine and they can worry about the next vintage. So to hear that is really wonderful. And we absolutely love the wines of Obahi. They make our Berry Brothers and mm-hmm. Rudd own Passat Lyonian, which is absolutely delicious. And all of their wines seem to be absolutely magnificent. Yeah. So a real the, treat for
1: the customers. The, the O4 showed unbelievably well and Veronique turned round. So actually that was the one that I brought, and a customer kindly said, oh, I'll bring a vintage as well, even though Veronique insisted, you know, please let me bring all the wines. And she said, oh, I actually, we actually don't have any more of this at the Domain, because it was so good, we ended up drinking it. And, <laughs> and so I said to her, I think we might have one or two cases left at BBR. And immediately the customers at the table just went, yeah, that, that's mine now. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is showing so well. And and that was lovely, because people might not think of O4 in a lineup with, 2009, 10, 14, 15, 16, 19. And yet 04 was delicious. And that again, right place, right person and an experience that customers will never forget.
0: I feel like 2004 vintage in Bordeaux is a bit of a theme this season. We tried some with Philip Moulin and they were absolutely <clears throat> singing. So clearly this is the year to be starting to open mm. up some of those 04s. But back to Burgundy, shall we yes. open this bottle? Fantastic. I'm going to let you do the honours.
1: Kindly. What a lovely sound that is.
0: And it looks beautiful going into the glass. So, as many of our listeners will be aware, red burgundy made from Pinot Noir, which is a grape that tends to give you quite a pale coloured wine. And this being six years old, got a lovely cherry colour just starting to get a tiny garnet tint at the edge of the glass. And what strikes me smelling this wine, the fragrance that comes from the glass here is really remarkable, absolutely extraordinary. There's this lovely, almost liqueur fruit, cherries that have been macerating Mm. for a while, some beautiful ripe strawberries, red currants, but there's also a gentle smokiness a little bit of spice I'm just starting to get a hint of a savoury character as well. Something ever so slightly gamey. Everything that you want in a a good glass of red burgundy in my view. Tell us a little bit about why you chose 2017, Charlie. You've mentioned your first case from Comte Armand was from 2010 and you bought this on BBX. And of course, we could have chosen a very young Burgundy to talk about the potential (laughs) for ageing. But we've gone for something with a little bit of age on it. And why this vintage in particular?
1: Any of my clients who will be listening to this will probably be unsurprised that I've picked 17. Burgundy is still one of the main topics, if not the main topic of discussion at the dinners that we host. And people talk to me about the prices and where value is and vintages. And every time we talk, I end up going back, I can't say enough about 17 and about the value and the opportunity it offers that in its youth, it's still showing really well and is very approachable. We suspect it may shut down to an extent and then reopen as Burgundy tends to do. But if you're looking for good value, of which there is still accessible because it's still not considered a fully mature and an older vintage, the joys again of BBX and the opportunity to search Burgundy 2017, and it's really a myriad of options that you can pick from. So 17 for me is A vintage that has a lot of place in my own household, where I, again, try and stave off 18s for as long as possible, buying back vintages to hold on any new on-premier purchases and making sure that those really special bottles have their say in the full time to mature. 14 and 17, I find, are the two, but 17 especially, that just show really well in their youth. Characteristics you describe in terms of actually signifies something that is relatively open, actually despite its five, six years of age.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. A word that you used a couple of times there was value. Do you really think there's still value to be found in Burgundy?
1: (laughs) When you know where to look. Again, it's probably the most common question. I know I want to buy Burgundy and I love Burgundy and I drink good value and where can I find value? And saying to people, okay, here is who you should be focusing on. Burgundy is so much about who's next as well. But here are people that are still 30, 40 pounds a bottle that just have no right to be. And actually, because they don't, Hopefully they're not listening to an extent, otherwise I won't be able to afford Comte Monde anymore. <laughs> 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 the way in which they position themselves.
0: Fairly priced.
1: Fairly priced, are passionate about what they do and make great wine that they love. And I think myself and my colleagues, actually, when we went to Burgundy, all ended up coming back and buying an enormous amount of Comte just because of the experience and what he was able to describe and looking at the price points versus you know, the tasting we'd had as, as a week as a whole and producers who stand out. Etienne Griveau, yes. yeah, he's yeah. another that just for an hour in his cellar, just his story, and just so passionate about what he does.
0: But Grivo, very sort of understated, really very humble.
1: Oh, massively. Yeah.
0: And what strikes me about these two producers here, um, Comte and Contamon and Grivo, just to name mm. two, is as you say, fairly priced. There is this desire for customers to drink the wines and enjoy them. And it's about making sure that the wines are as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. And whether that audience is based in the UK, Singapore, around the world, and whether they are younger or older, um, it's not necessarily about these being absolutely priced at the very top of the market. It's wines which you can buy, which you can lay down, and then you can open them up and you can really enjoy them.
1: You get to share that bottle and share that story with, with your friends who then get to do the same. And, and it's not, as you mentioned earlier, the, you know, the unicorn wine that simply doesn't exist. But actually, when you're looking to tell the story of someone like Etienne Grivo and, and actually how accessible and understated and brilliant his wines are, the fact that they are there and we can bring them over and, and customers can enjoy that just means his story goes that much further. Absolutely. And you can really build up a following and a passion and a group of people that just love his wines.
0: What I love about this wine in front of us, so this is from the village of Volnay. Whilst Volnay is relatively well known, I would still say, from my perspective, it can offer particularly good value. I think there is a perception that because it's based on the Côte de Beaune, so the part of Burgundy that's perhaps slightly better known for white wines, the reds here are maybe a little underrated, and yet. There's a real charm to this wine. There's a beautiful density of flavour. The sufficient tannin this could easily age for another five years, at least, if you wanted it to. But it's just showing everything that you would really want in a red Burgundy, and you don't necessarily need to be heading to Gevre chambertin to get mm-hmm.
1: that. And Actually, one of the most eye-opening things for me on this recent visit to Burgundy was just how long these wines can age for. Yes, they can be so accessible, and because Burgundy ageing is based on Structure rather than tannin. Listening to the producers and and how they're excited about twenty ones because of the structure and its youth.
0: So in that sense, structure being different to tannins because it also encompasses acidity, mm. body, density of flavour. Balance being
1: more important than yeah. size. Effectively, they said, well, almost the size is almost irrelevant when we make it because it's how it will age is based on the balance. And visiting batuse Priya, mm-hmm. it was actually it was his birthday, so I think he was feeling particularly cheery one of my colleagues is born in 83 so he's pulling out various 83s to try and all just showing amazingly well i think we all just looked at each other kind of going these should have been long gone and i said to him is this really that special a vintage and he went "Not, not particularly but it's been properly stored and looked after and actually burgundy will continue to develop yes against what we do as a merchant in offering advice to people but One of the main takeaways was whatever you think in terms of maturing, add another few years, it will always go for longer than you expect. And the degree of complexity and enjoyment that you can get from that and patience, which I admittedly don't have the greatest amount of, which is why I find myself on BBX more often than not. But again, it adds to the the story of your evening and the history behind why you bought that bottle and, and why you've held it for so long and who you're sharing it with. This wine, the
0: beautiful acidity, the fruit character is making my mouth water and it's instantly making me think of food and of course food is a big part of life in Singapore. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on food and wine matching in Singapore. Are the rules different to how we do this in the UK? Are there specific wines that would go with specific foods or is it a little bit more flexible?
1: I think it's relatively flexible in that Singapore, as mean, food is so important to Singapore. One of the national icons or, or maintains areas in Singapore is called hawker centres, which is where effectively it's the closest thing to imagine there are a load of permanently residing food trucks that are based there full-time, they're subsidised through the government and offer delicious local Singaporean food. So chicken rice staple at the office Laxo, which is kind of prawn and quite
0: spicy sort of quite curry. spicy yeah. yeah
1: there's one about 100 meters from our office that is frequented a lot uh, economy rice which is a portion of rice two meat one veg and an egg or something on the side it beats the tesco meal deal that's for sure <laughs> i do every time i go back i'm fortunate mister okay this is just delicious and accessible and in a city like singapore which is quite expensive they often escape from that because it's Three, four dollars. But it's kind of a dull, warm spice and a lot of Singaporean food. So the pairing is challenging also because whites are still in the background. Again, mm. sweeping statement, which amazes me as an, an expat with the heat because it's so hot. It's such red focus. We have found that actually we've had some delicious Vaughan Romane that's paired really well with some carrot cake. It's gonna sound incredibly unappealing, but it's my favorite dish in Singapore. It's basically fried turnip mixed with some exo sauce and, and fried in front of you, and it's just delicious. Again, don't take my word for it because I, I haven't solved that very well, but it is absolutely delicious, and we've had that with various lighter burgundy pairings. It's all quite floral. There's great aromatics. Well, like some 17 Volnay, for example, and it's just delicious because there's just enough spice that the alcohol's not brought out too much and it's just heavy enough despite being lighter style there's just enough firmness to it that the food is still not overpowering but i think it's very much an experiment
0: as all the best food and wine matches are
1: absolutely it's often reliable that a client has told me that every chinese dinner pairs with 89 bordeaux and Hmm. i said well i'm sure it does but that's (laughs) slightly more challenging for most people he has very fortunately shared that with me and i do agree with him on that statement but it's not an everyday occurrence
0: is there a culture of Food and wine matching when people eat out or actually is wine served only at special occasions or wine made the focus of an event and then the food fits around it.
1: Interesting, especially in Singapore and Southeast Asia is that when you're meeting friends or we're meeting clients or you know, we're getting together as a team. One of the main cultural differences is it has to be over food. People just don't go just for drinks. So actually, in that essence, there is then always, therefore, at least a degree of focus on food. Mm. I think that starts from the hawker centres, which people go to as children, and you build up, and eating is always communal. And therefore, it works, but wine is always communal. So the two obviously go together incredibly well. And it's considered a huge honour to be invited to someone's house for for dinner, and and they'll say, of course, we could eat out, we could go to a hawker, but again, everything has to be over food. I want you to come to my house and we'll have a dinner and no, oh, no, don't need to worry about any wines. I do a bit, I said, no, we'll, we'll look after you. And there've been some just wonderful evenings that I think still it's, it's food because it's the Singapore culture, certainly the starting point, but the wine lovers of which there are more and more are adamant. And, and I think it's still experimenting with how this food can best pair. If you ask me right now, the perfect bottle, I think, I still don't think it exists to an extent, or it's still experimenting. But there's been some lovely. I said, phone really stands out to me. Again, being Ireland surrounded by many oceans, obviously huge, huge emphasis on seafood, and we had uh, any of the Lammy Santa bands pair so well. Actually, the fourteens and 15s of his Champlos are just delicious.
0: This is uh, Hubert yes. I believe, and his Burgundian wines, the whites in particular, or they the reds to some extent as well have a real depth and richness to them I find a real intensity I think he has a theory that his soils are particularly rich in uh, marine fossils and there is something about that sort of marine character in the soil that means that his wines go particularly well with seafood really really beautiful sounds as though there's a little bit more work to be done on your part though when it comes to finding the perfect food and wine pairing Before we wrap up, a couple more questions from me. I couldn't help but notice at the start of the episode, you referred to our chair as Mum. (laughs) So tell us, what is it like working in this business with the surname Rudd? Do you find that people treat you differently or not?
1: I love working for the family business. There are enough family members within it that it still has enough degree of family, but it's not overbearing. I also work on the other side of the world from the rest of my family, Mm -hmm. whether that was choice or by chance. (laughs) <laughs> Leave that open to interpretation. I think it's particularly useful in Asia where it can at least open a door where I don't feel as though I'm treated any different, but there may be a time that oh, this is a part of the family who I think, again, where it comes back to an emerging market, I've had someone say, wow, okay, this is clearly they care. This is someone from the own family who's now running the region and, and lives here full time. And has got a Singaporean wife and loves carrot cake and this fried turnip and... <laughs> everything that we would want from someone, I'll at least have the conversation. So I think that can help. And the Berry's name will carry as far across as, as to Singapore and Malaysia and Thailand because of the reputation and reliability, which is so important for the region. So if there's someone with that name and, and there's a Berry or a Rudd in the region, then it definitely helps to start a conversation. And then you can... Explain the merits of what we do.
0: You don't find people rolling out the red carpet at the offices at Number Three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like I said I still get lost here, so definitely not. I walked in the office today and someone oh, didn't even know you were here. Okay, thanks. We have a meeting request this afternoon. I right. as it should be, I as, think. As it should be. This okay. is
0: good because I'm going to ask you to help me clean up uh, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> what is your secret? wine trade piece of advice that you give to your customers when they ask you for a top tip or an insider secret.
1: My favorite strategy that I say to people in terms of building your wine collection it is a strategy for customers and what they want to achieve from it is help me to let you drink better every five years those with seller plans who often are in this for the long haul that we're talking about today, going back, filling some 2010s or some 2014s or some 2017s to enable you to save those special years, whether like it's 16 Bordeaux, for example, that needs so much time, but at the end of it is just going to be otherworldly. And I say, look, just if I can have 5% of buy-in, here's the merits of doing this. Everyone starts too late. My friends and are all just turning 30 now. And I'm saying to them, look, there's no better time to start than now. People talk about investing and then saving, investing in wine in terms of building a cellar to enjoy for better drinking when you're 35, 40, 45, 50. It will save you a lot of time, effort, money, hassle, stress, and lead to a lot more wonderful evenings in the short midterm. So for me, it's drinking better every five years. There is still a tendency to get caught up on the biggest names and the biggest regions. And it's trusting us to find, look, here is where there's still value as well. I think it's being of an open enough mindset to keep trying new things as well. Everyone typically starts in Bordeaux or in Singapore in thick, heavy, oaky Shiraz. And it's actually learning that the wider world out there. And we're seeing more and more questions on Loire. Mm. A year ago would never get asked. And now I probably get asked once a week. What do you think? Do you think that it can keep growing? and yes. Could it be like Burgundy? Yes. You know, it's everything you 100%. look at what Burgundy was 20 years ago is what Loire could end up being.
0: Almost definitely will be.
1: And that's exciting. And yes, it takes a question to ask, but then what do we do? How can I learn about it? What producers should I look for? And it's, it's starting that kind of conversation. So that's been a lovely change and it's probably one of the most recent ones that I've seen for our market that it's just starting to get going. And that's a really exciting region to be looking at.
0: Well... Cheers to this beautiful red burgundy. Mm. Cheers, Cheers to the future of the Loire. And thank you so, so much for your time. Such a fascinating discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast, visit bbr.com slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Barry Brothers and Rudd, All the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. I'm off to track down a bowl of laxa. Cheers.